This is the Seek Outside Podcast, brought to you by Seek Outside. The following few episodes are recorded during the 2020 pandemic spring, so we have some extra time on our hands. Today's guest is Brandon Ellsworth. He's an experienced pilot, does a lot of backcountry flying. That's today's topic, so enjoy. Hey, this is Seek Outside Podcast. Today, our guest is Brandon Ellsworth. Brandon's been in the Seek Outside orbit for quite a while, um, testing some gear, stuff like that. He's also a board member of the Washington BHA and a commercial pilot. Our topic today is backcountry flying. Brandon actually uses um, plane to access a lot of his backcountry locations. I um, think that'll be of great interest. Also, before we really dive into this, um, we have some really interesting podcasts coming up in the next uh, few days. We have uh, Kevin Koprick, who is an experienced mountain guide and rescue instructor. So I think we'll be talking a little bit about mountain safety in that. Uh, we have Jack Brower, who is a backpacking photographer. He's backpacked all over the world. We have Ryan Lampers. Um, don't know what we're going to talk about with Ryan, but I'm sure we'll find something relevant. Um, also, Ben Brochu. He's done some pretty extreme pack rafting trips. Um, John Wellfelt, and I believe Hal Herring's going to be on pretty soon too. So, anyway, without further ado, let's get started on this. So, Brandon, you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Hey, thanks, guys. Thanks for having me on. I'm uh, really happy to be here. Um, like you mentioned, uh, I'm a commercial pilot. I've been flying for about uh, 23 years now. Um, both privately and general aviation and commercially. Um, outside of that, I'm also pretty actively involved with the Washington chapter of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. I'm one of the board members there. Um, and as you alluded to, I do integrate quite a bit of my my aviation passion with uh, with conservation by utilizing um, those airborne resources to access some pretty unique uh, spaces uh, that we can go hunt and play around in. Sweet. Um, so how did you get into using the, a plane for backcountry travel? How long have you been doing that? Yeah. So uh, aviation kind of has a, has a history, right. Of, uh, of, of accessing pretty unique and isolated places. Uh, I think most people can look, look back at, uh, Alaska is probably the primary use space, um, for, for small aircraft. Um, I learned to fly in Arizona when I was uh, um, in uh, high school. And Arizona is a pretty vast, vast state. And I'd spent a number of years just backpacking, hiking, rafting, et cetera. Um, but by driving to these locations, and it would take hours and hours and hours. And oftentimes we'd only have, you know, a short weekend in order to fit these adventures in. And so once I learned to fly, I, I kind of was exposed to this, this huge litany of both private and publicly accessible landing strips um, that basically just opened, uh, it just opened a number of doors to adventure more, to spend more time outside and to access more places more often because I didn't have to deal with the logistics and quite frankly, the time of driving. So um, 
I went on my first backcountry trip with an airplane um, when I was when I was 17 years old, and that just it was to the south rim of the Grand Canyon, and that just kind of opened up uh, Pandora's box, if you will, of of heading out and stuffing a bunch of backpacking gear in the back of a small airplane and and seeing where I could end up. So a couple of Owen, my son's friends, Fly, one of his best friends that he bikes with, he's going to school for aviation. And one of his awesome. friends from high school um, was working on getting his pilot's license while he was in high school. Um, and he for basically foregone as far as getting a car to drive, right? And he's going to school somewhere in Utah now for aviation stuff. And Owen said that he took him on a ride in his plane one day around the mountains here and he said that it was really cool that it was that the little plane was a lot like um a lot like mountain biking was almost kind of free in a way um is it kind of just a different feel than the structure of when you go on a commercial jet oh absolutely so the beauty of general aviation is is the liberation that you have the freedom to go essentially fly wherever you want and uh, a lot more opportunity to land and explore places that, you know, a commercial uh, aircraft simply can't access or, or won't access until you get down to, you know, a, a much smaller operation or charter level. Um, the, the views that you get from flying uh, kind of at the, the military crest, you know, not, not the very top of mountains or ridgelines, but even just slightly below are viewpoints that they really can't be replicated. Uh, I, I have not at least experienced an opportunity to replicate what those being able to consume a landscape at that elevation um, looks like. And so, yeah, he's, he's totally right on. Um, it, with mountain biking, you know, the, the little mountain biking I do, um, one of my favorite parts of it is just the vast amount of ground that I can, that I can travel, that I can see and experience. And airplanes give you that opportunity as well. You know, I can, in an hour, I can take off out of uh, Seattle and I can do a loop between Mount Rainier, the southern end of the Cascades, and go up to the North Cascades and get this incredible view of these, of these public spaces that are, um, that just can't be consumed any other way. So like, you know, you know, Angie, you've been in our orbit for quite a while, you know, Angie pretty well. How would you convince Angie yeah. to get in a little plane? Uh, you know, that's a, that's actually a, a question that I've, I've had to uh, tackle a number of time with with students and clients um, dealing with apprehensive or or quite frankly scared um, significant others and I, I would start by just slowing everything down and simplifying it so uh, aviation can sometimes oftentimes come across as a very complex um, intense experience and my goal that complexity as possible correlate as much of the of the flaw the student already knows that i can already do you know like the control wheel let's let's treat it like a steering wheel today let's just see what happens when we do that um you know pointing out pointing out major landmarks that they're already familiar with 
Uh, we do that quite often in, in the tour business to, to kind of cage Mount Rainier over there. But if you look just to the south, you know, you can see Mount St. Helens. Check that out. Now you can see the entire range of uh, volcanoes here, here in Western Washington. So we simplify first and then, you know, it's a, it's a rapport building exercise. You know, um, we try our best to, to uh, reassure the student, the new student that uh, this is, this is a normal thing that people do. And it happens frequently throughout the country and world every day. And it's not, it's not an overwhelming or, uh, or undoable task. So let's just go out and try. Okay. Okay. Cause I know like I've tried to convince Angie. I've been like, Hey Ange, you want to go on a caribou flying caribou hunt with me? And it's pretty much like a, Oh, no way. No way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. My, my best recommendation would be like, if you're the husband or boyfriend or, or girlfriend or wife for that matter, uh, you're probably not the right person to be convincing your significant other that it's a good idea. Try and get someone else that they have a, either a rapport with or, or that they're comfortable with. That's, that's gone through the experience to kind of say, Hey, it's, it's pretty fun. You know, it's pretty cool. Yeah. Okay. So, let me ask you, um, do you know anything about Dyneema? <laughs> a little bit. I'm, I think I, I think I could speak to Dyneema. Yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, as, as we've chatted about a few times in the past, it's a, it's a pretty incredible fabric um, in terms of its uh, waterproofness to uh, weight kind of comparison. And it's, it's one I've, I've really enjoyed Seek Outside kind of jumping back into using in a number of their products. Yeah, you used the Cimarron last year with the U-turn stove, right? I did, yeah. So we took that, uh, I did a seven-day hunt in the Frank Church last fall, uh, kind of a combined elk and deer hunt, and uh, took the Cimarron, the Dyneema Cimarron with the U-turn stove. Uh, I actually had a new hunter with me. It was his first experience. Um, going into the backcountry, flying into the backcountry, going on a hunt um, in the backcountry where we we're really on our own. And uh, that really that really shaped his experience, being able to crawl on that thing, have that stove fired up, cook a little food on there, and not really feel it too much on your back when we're walking out the next day. That's true. How was the deer hunting? Oh, uh, it was unsuccessful, but still amazing it's a, that's an incredible piece uh, piece of, of public ground out there that wilderness area is that's that's got to be in my top three of all the united states it's it's just amazing i know that video that uh brian call and ryan lampers had from their uh, deer hunt there last year was quite incredible i thought yeah i you know i i've spent a, a reasonable amount of time out in the frank hunting and um Boy, the last thing I want to think about is filming when I'm walking up and down those mountains. How those guys do that just is uh, it. It's kind of a testament to their commitment to showing the the viewer like what what that hunt is like out there. I mean, I love going out there, but boy, I I do not want to spend time filming. I just want to focus on on the animals and uh, man, they're they do a heck of a job. Yeah, I know that's a it's a whole nother uh, level. I, I, I when it comes to filming, I'm I'm kind of like I don't want to film. I don't I don't really want. 
I don't really want it to be that personal or that public when I, when I go hunt, I want it to stay more private, I guess you'd say. I'm just not good enough. <laughs> I just have to, it feels like I have to spend all my, all my focus on looking for the animals, tracking the mm -hmm. animals, um, you know, patterning the animals and then to ultimately hopefully get an opportunity at harvesting one of the animals. So that's that I just, I see those guys that are able to do all of that consistently. And I'm, it's, I'm in, I'm pretty awestruck by it. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, I got, a, I got a question, uh, try to circle back to you, you flying planes around. So you said your first trip at 17, <laughs> you, you flew a plane yeah. to the Grand Canyon. So where did you fly the yep. plane when you were 17? I did. Yeah. So in the, in the United States, you can, you can earn your license as young as, as 17. Um, and so I had my license and I said, let's, let's figure this out. So we saddled up and went. <laughs> uh and when you say we you mean it was uh myself and uh just a friend of mine who was put a, put a lot of faith in uh in his 17 year old buddy that he could fly an airplane across the state of arizona and land it somewhere near the grand canyon to go have a good time wow that's uh yeah that that's crazy so so what does it take to get to that kind of level because i've thought are you when my kids were little uh guy in the back he was directly abutted to the house we lived in at the time. He had a landing strip and a uh, hangar, and he built a little apartment in the hangar. So he went to work just in the city that he worked at. He just flew out every day, right? Um, sure. And it was pretty cool, you know, to see him just take off at 7 or 8 in the morning, you know, from essentially our backyard. Um, and I've thought quite a few times that I wouldn't mind getting my pilot's license or to be able to do that at some point that it seems fun, but I know there's a fair expense and stuff like that as well. What, if somebody wanted to do that, how would you suggest they go about it? Sure. So, uh, I recommend learning to fly to everyone because I think it's an experience that one is a little bit unique to some of the freedoms that we have here in the United States. And two, it's, it's an interesting challenge that, um, that many won't, won't quite frankly have the opportunity to take. Um, every, every county, I, I hesitate to say every, every town, but every county in America has an airport, a uh, municipal run airport that um, typically will have a flight school on it. Now it may just be a, a small one aircraft operation, but that's, that's all it's needed in order to kind of, um, go through the training process of earning what the the FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration, calls your private pilot certificate, and that that is a the license you need to to fly wherever you want in the United States. So, um, uh, something as simple as just a phone call down to the local flight school, just just showing that you have some level of interest, uh, I can assure you that um, whoever answers the phone on that end will not only um, be happy to speak with you, but they'll, they're going to spend time describing the program that they're offering. The one thing that is, uh, that's really common throughout the aviation circles is the, the level of friendship that pilots share. It's, uh, almost, it's, it's fraternal in a way. Uh, and pilots like to talk about flying. So if you have an interest in, in flying, we're going to love to talk to you about it. Um, Folks that are spending time at that level teaching 
flying have a passion that they want to share with others. So uh, I would just recommend making the phone call. The next step would be stopping in and um, taking what, what many folks or what many schools call uh, an introductory flight. And typically it's just a 30 to 45 minute flight around the local area, do a couple of landings where you have an instructor with you that's kind of showing you what the mechanics of flying an airplane at the most basic level look like. Um, to, and you get to, you get an opportunity to kind of gauge like your interest in, in pursuing this endeavor. It's not, I, I will, I will say it's not, it's not inconsequential. It's, it's, it takes some time and it takes energy, um, and it takes some focus, uh, uh, because there, there are minimum hour requirements. So you have a minimum number of hours that you're going to spend in the airplane. There's a minimum number of ground training requirements that have to be met. And then there's an academic test. And then the culmination of the entire training process is going on a flight with a FAA representative who is evaluating you both in an oral um, ground evaluation and in flight for practical evaluation to ensure that you meet the standards that have been set um, for safety. So it's important when we introduce um, new students or or interested parties in, in aviation, we try not to look at the entirety of the training plan, though it's important to recognize that there there is a significant um, a significant amount of time required. But we try and break it down into smaller blocks. They're just easier to consume. And you, you set these kind of smaller goals that as the student progresses, they meet these goals that ultimately take them to that, that final check ride that I described. So now from my son's friend, he, I think he leased a plane or had a share of a plane or something that he used okay, during cool. his training. Right. So is it, sure. do you, is that something you would recommend too, or is that a. Sure. Anything that gets a, uh, someone interested and in the air, I'm going to recommend that is a, uh, kind of a less common way of learning to fly, uh, in terms of like the gross numbers of people that earn their licenses every year. However, it's not, it's not uncommon to have, to be a member of a, a flying club or a flying organization that may have a small fleet of aircraft that you ultimately buy into either in an equity or non-equity share and then lease um, time off of one or mo one or several of those airplanes in order to uh, earn that time towards your certificates um, many of these flights or many of these um, flying clubs also have instructors on staff so in in an essence it's almost operating like a small flight school that I described, just that the students are also equity partners in uh, in the aircraft themselves. Hmm. So all said and done, what's a realistic uh, time expectation and money expectation to get through to to that to that point? Sure. So time-wise, it's it's highly dependent on the time availability of the student and the motivation of the student. Um, you know, a student that only flies once every week or every other week may spend an entire year to process the entirety of the, of the program. But the student that flies every, you know, th 
three times a week, maybe four times a week, maybe done in, in just a matter of months, um, three or four months, depending on, um, on how quickly they progress. Uh, money is uh, highly variable, and, and there's a couple of reasons why. The regionality of aviation. So if I were to learn to fly and say Omaha, Nebraska, the cost of operating, owning and operating a flight school there is um, it's lower than, say, New York or New Jersey. Um, so the cost could be pretty it could be uh, a range, right? So I would say on the low end, you're probably looking at around $4,500 for the private pilot curriculum. And uh, the high end, you can go um, well above, well above 10,000, depending on the, the aircraft and the area that you're in. Okay. So, so let's say I do that. I get my time in, I, I pass all the things. What's, what's the first plane I'm buying to get me into the Frank church? <laughs> and, and how much does you know, that cost? Um, sure. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's hard to say. So the Frank church has a, a wide range of, uh, of, of airstrips that you, you can access. Um, surprisingly, you don't need, I mean, you don't really need that much of an airplane to access the basic strips of, of that particular wilderness area. Um, you know, many, many people will go in there on, uh, in, in light single engine trainers um after after they've been trained to do so uh you know i think i think probably one of the most common airplanes that most students get into if they're if they continue uh and want to purchase and have full ownership of an airplane it's it's probably something like a piper warrior or a cesta 172 um pretty pretty basic um pretty basic single engine airplane relatively cheap to maintain and insure so, and those can get you under the correct conditions and, and certainly with ample training into the, the, the most basic of backcountry airstrips. Uh, I hesitate to make significant recommendations uh, just because the, the variability across both airplanes and skill set is so wide that each, each individual kind of needs to sit down with their instructor or mentor who's kind of helping guide through this process uh, to really determine what what is right for them and what what personal limits they need to set for accessing um, some of those airstrips and then you and then you also mentioned cost so uh, that is also a wide range um, it can it can be as probably as low as maybe twenty thousand for a very basic aircraft and it can go as high as your eyes are willing to look uh, it can go very very high so it's not it's not necessarily the cheapest endeavor uh, unfortunately and I know there are a number of organizations that have worked uh, both historically and currently to to try and reduce that cost to get more aviators aviating um, in either ownership or or, or part equity um, organizations uh, but I like to, I really do like to um, kind of correlate it to, I can get a student into a, a very reliable flying airplane for way less than someone goes out and buys a new bass boat for, you know, um, yeah. it's just, it's just kind of how one wants to divvy out those recreational dollars. So, so like a Toyota Camry. 
Well, let's not let's not go that far. But you know, it it would take some looking, and it probably take a little bit of effort on the on the prospective buyer's part. Um, but there there are opportunities out there to get into aviation for a much lower cost basis than I think is portrayed um, daily. So so more than it costs more than Owens mountain bikes, but yeah, but. but you could get into it for way less than a good overland rig new. Yeah. Have you shopped those new overland rigs? Holy moly. They're getting a pretty penny for some of those. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh my goodness. Oh, yeah, exactly. We, so. we could, we could start a new genre the like over air overlanding, right? Hey, that sounds good to me. Yeah. So, huh. so now you, so now the other cost is how much, does it cost for you to do a trip like to the Frank? Cause you're in the greater Seattle area, right? Um, out in yeah, the yeah. town. So how much does sure. it cost for you to pull just that part of it off? Um, it is depending on if I were to stop. So uh, like I've, I've obviously driven out before and, and met up with folks or, or used a charter in the past. Um, if I stop and use a hotel on my way to the Frank and or on the way back, it's a wash. So, um, so I'm running a, a Beechcraft Bonanza and I'm probably looking at a hundred and oh, maybe 150 bucks an hour to operate it kind of all in. Um, maybe a little less. I don't know. I try not to look at it too frequently, um, but maybe, maybe just a hair less than that. And it takes me um, to, to smack in the middle of the Frank from my airport it takes me two hours, like almost, almost like clockwork for, to be right in the middle of, of the frank. So, um, you figure four hours at 150 bucks an hour. So probably looking at 600 in operating cost uh, in four hours put on the airplane. That's pretty to, awesome uh, to get in there. So, so yeah, literally, so literally, you could leave your house at like eight in the morning, and be in the middle of the frank by noon. Oh yeah, I mean, assuming assuming the weather's good, no, it's yeah, it's a, it's no problem. Uh, I, oftentimes I'll, I'll do the kind of the opposite of that. I'll leave kind of in the late afternoon targeting the land kind of in the, certainly before sundown, but kind of in the, in the later afternoon, early evening. And, and, um, that way I can get everything kind of buttoned down in the light, um, get some sleep. And then I'm there for first light to go out and, and start my hunt, depending on what I'm doing or fish. And then you can take off after a couple of days and go get some pizza if you want, and then come back. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I have a I have a pretty good friend that has a has a has a place in, in, uh, just outside of Boise that he uh, he's been known to fly home after a couple of days and sit in the jacuzzi and take a shower and eat a full meal and then fly back out. So he'll take you know take a ten day hunt. He may fly out two or three times to go do all that and then. I kind of give him a little That's give him some crap for that. It is cheating. I agree, but he loves it. He loves loving it in. So that's pretty fun. So how was it? <clears throat> you went to Antarctica. How was that? Yeah. And why didn't you share that's, any hot uh, tub photos? Place. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I got to go to Antarctica last fall. Um, I was on the, uh, we call it the deep freeze team that uh, we operate C-17s down there for the uh, National Science Foundation moving equipment and people 
onto and off of uh, McMurdo Station um, down there on the surface. Uh, so uh, the, the whole operation is really kind of interesting, but uh, the reason I wasn't able to get any hot tent photos is because we never get to shut down the engines when we're down there. It's too cold. So uh, all the all the testing and, and stuff that I, I get to do, I did I did run a few miles while I was down there, and I, I got the opportunity to test out that flight pack in some pretty cold conditions, uh, but didn't have a chance. I, I didn't have a chance to set up a tent. Now, I have, uh, I have a couple of things in the works for another opportunity um, if I get to go back down in the next couple seasons to, to be able to spend, maybe be able to spend a little bit of time on the, on the air station down there, maybe overnight and that'll, uh, that, that might offer an opportunity to do some real, real good testing. So, so when you said too cold, how cold was it? And you were, you were down there probably sometime around what was some considered summer or spring. You weren't pure winter down there, right? No, no. Yeah, no. Um, so I went down in October and so it was kind of the end of spring ish. Um, and it was still really cold. So typical temperatures for us when we were down there were between like minus 25 to minus 35 C, uh, before, before wind chill, if there was a breeze. Um, so while breakup had not like Breakup was just starting when we arrived. I mean, like the, you know, the, the glaciers and the ice shelf itself were just starting to break up as we arrived there early in the season. Uh, and then as the season, our season was five weeks long as it progressed, it, um, it's, it got warmer. So I think by the time we left, I think we were looking at like minus 10 to minus 15 during our land time windows. So a little chilly, but not, not the worst. The minus, I went out for a run at minus 29. And that was that was good, yeah. Minus twenty eight, twenty nine, something like that. Lung burner. Yeah, yeah. It was really, it was really, uh, yeah. Had to do it for the gram. <laughs> <laughs> now, back to back to like Idaho and the Frank. I take it it's like Alaska. Like you can't fly and hunt the same day, right? Um. So the the Idaho Idaho Fish and Game regulations actually do allow you to fly and hunt on the same day in the state of Idaho. But I'm, I'm being real specific in saying that because I'm not familiar necessarily with all Western states regulations, specifically to aviation. I have to, I, in fact, I look them up every season for every, uh, for every hunting season that, uh, that I go out. So, but Idaho has historically allowed hunting the same day that you fly. Hmm. I don't know. That seems like a unfair advantage, but maybe it's, it's just uh, due to the limitation of the landing strips. I don't know. It's just the the way the rules are written right now. Um, I, I don't know of any of any change of any change to that. Um, and if if someone does, I'm certainly welcome to be corrected. Now, what about what about people that spot game through the air and then go in? probably three years, yeah. four years ago, I was hunting and, um, mm -hmm. had these elk kind of to myself. Um, it was just, it was just a, basically a part of a ridgeline that I thought looked elky and I went in there and yeah, sure enough, there was elk. I, I was in elk mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden one day I was maybe about a hundred, 150 yards from this plane started buzzing like right overhead and, yeah. um, the elk kind of ran off. 
And then I looked yeah. down the ridge, yeah. and like an hour later, there was like a sea of orange coming up. And oh my, I, I got out of there. Uh, but I could clearly see that these guys, one person would be spotting and guiding the other guys where to go. And to, to me, that really isn't, um, well, I mean, that isn't the ethics that I, that I want to adhere sure. to. Right. Yeah. And I, and I agree with you. Um, you know, I, I'd be lying if I told you I didn't, uh, if I wasn't able to notice animals when I was flying into a number of these places, um, and, and see where they're at. Um, Fortunately, that was coincidental to me going to these these areas anyway. Uh, but personally, and this is kind of one of the for for folks that I I share this experience with, and I, I try and make it as clear as I can. Like, we're only using the airplane as a tool for access, not for a tool of chase, right? So all we're using the airplane for is a tool to get where we need to be, and then we go chase the animals. We're not. We're not reversing that at all. We're not going to chase the animals and then decide where we're going to land um, based on that. Um, that's, I mean, that's just how I prefer to do it. Um, I hesitate to pass judgment on others because without knowing the full situation, uh, I don't want to, I don't want to judge, but how I operate and folks that I, the, the airplane is used to go from point A to point B. Uh, and if we're just going to go out for a sightseeing tour, that's what it's going to be. We're not going to carry rifles or bows with us. And, you know, we're not going to sit down. That's, we're just going to go look at stuff. So, uh, but, you know, those, those ethics are, they're up to the, honestly, they're up to the individual to, to decide on what's, what's appropriate, what's appropriate use. True, true. So let's switch gears a little bit. Um, like I said, at the intro, you've been in the Seek Outside Orbit for quite a while. And being that you live in wet Washington, um, we get a yeah. lot of people asking advice about, well, I live in coastal, whatever, what should I get? Um, so what kind of advice do you have from someone there? Cool. So if we're, if we're looking at shelters, uh, certainly floorless shelters, uh, there's kind of like three things that I'm looking for um, specific to the shelters. Uh, ventilation is the only answer to, to any, to anything wet, right? Whatever you can do to ventilate your shelter is going to, is going to help. But the other thing that I think a lot of folks overlook is the, the surface humidity on which they're pitching. Okay. So as much as I love to, to camp on a, uh, uh, you know, on a grassy knoll with a great outlook, grass holds a lot of moisture. And so for those that complain about condensation, uh, which seems to be a primary complaint of single wall shelters, uh, I, I spend a lot of time talking about, or at least discussing, you know, some of the other factors that go into condensation forming. Um, so uh, as an example, I'm staring out at my uh, six man teepee right now, since we're, we're, since we're here in the almost quarantine and the Seattle area set it up so we'd have somewhere to go hang out outside. So I have it set up out in my yard on my grass it's been it's raining right now it's been raining for the last four days um i have a half liner in it which i'll talk about in a moment um but yesterday we did not go into the teepee at all um so this morning i went out and we had a little bit of condensation forming as soon as the sun had come up and started heating up the inside of that uh, teepee and the grass was releasing that moisture. So 
I say that to ensure that folks really spend time picking the surface type in which they're going to pitch. Um, this is going beyond the, the, the very typical and standard, like make sure there's good drainage, don't set up in a sinkhole uh, and all that. The liner that I just mentioned makes a big difference because what it allows us to do is take part of the tent. Again, I'm running a half liner. So we take part of the tent and turn it into a double walled shelter. So we have that air gap between the inside wall and the outside shelter wall that really helps. I mean, that is, that's a really big, big help. Um, using the stove to heat the interior does a very good job of drying everything out, um, both the surface that you're pitched on and the interior that may be there. And that's not just isolated to the, the shelter itself. You know, if you go out hunting all day and you come back and it's rained or you perspired significantly and you have wet equipment, that is all going to emit this a tremendous amount of humidity within the shelter if, if it's brought inside, which will just uh, continue to condense it under the right conditions. So uh, that stove and drying everything out really, really helps. And then finally, the last thing I do is I've got a couple of um, a couple of the stakeout point, not a couple, about half the stakeout points I have some um, two millimeter uh, line loops, about a uh, four or six inch loop uh, tied to it. And I will oftentimes take uh, a section of those, maybe half the teepee's worth or every other, if you will, and um, pitch it out off of those loops. And that puts just a little air gap between the sod skirt and the, uh, the stakeout point. Uh, and just that little bit of airflow just that, that seems to make a, a, a noticeable difference. So selecting the surface um, that you're pitching on, um, ensuring, or using a liner, using the stove, I kind of keep those together since they're kind of with me all the time anyway, and then maybe uh, pitching with an air gap at the sod skirt. Those, I've taken that, that, that TP, I've taken the Cimarron, um, those have both been out on the coast uh, here in Washington during consider not the prettiest times. Um, I took the Aeolus out to British Columbia last May uh, and it rained every day. Uh, that one was, you know, it's a little bit easier because it kind of has integrated air gap at the bottom. But um, the, 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 the answer to all the condensation issues is, is ventilation. Um, and so those are the, those are the kind of the, the tips that I would give to folks um, trying to, trying to battle that. I agree. I think that the bottom ventilation, at least in our testing, is a lot more important than the top ventilation. The top ventilation helps, mm -hmm. but bottom ventilation mm -hmm. does about 80% of it. And as, you know, like the Eolus was specifically designed around really minimizing the uh, condensation. And I think that the proof is kind of in the pudding in that one. It seems to have done really well yeah. for everyone with it. So. Yeah, you know, the, the Eolus is, it's a, it's a, there is no integrated ventilation aside from how it's, you know, how it's pitched and then how the door is either opened or closed or, or what have you. So I think that's a really indicative point in that, you know, the rooftop or the peak ventilation at the very top might not actually be nearly as effective or, or nearly as important as what we have set up near the base. Okay. Um, and, and so you're saying that you pitch every other stakeout loop with a piece of cordage so that you can get it up off the ground. 
Um, you you yeah. can use. Yeah, if I think. Yeah, you, go on. Oh, I was gonna say, yeah, I think um, I, I don't start that way typically. I'll, I'll normally pitch it to the ground, assuming that I've been able to select a, a surface that I don't find terribly humid. Uh, if I'm going to be using the stove uh, and um, um, and I have the liner installed. Um, uh, the, another thing I've done is I, I think Kevin has seen it, but I keep I keep about a, a 10 foot section of two millimeter line kind of pre-attached to three quarters of the guy out loops. Uh, that are on like the six man and I keep them attached on my Cimarron. Uh, and I've, I've actually used that to, um, to loop through the bottom stakeout loop and kind of um, cinch it up. So there's kind of a, a gap between stakes like that as well. And that's, that's worked as well. Got it. Yeah. So, we'll, so we'll, we'll have to try to get a picture of that for people to see what he's yeah, talking about. I'll, I'll yeah. go out and take one once we're done here and yeah, it'll be, see what I mean. Cool. So let's say let's say mid late November early December, and you are hunting on the wet side of Washington solo. Ooh, yeah. Okay. Would would you take like a tent that had a liner or a Dyneema tent without one, or Ooh. what would you just kind of go with? You know, I I think I I would lean towards Dyneema because you can just expect to be wet. Like not, not you personally, but you can expect that it's going to be raining. Uh, I find the Dyneema to be uh, a, a little more hydrophobic. So it, I think it repels actual moisture a little better. I would absolutely not leave the house without a stove. However, uh, I think if you're able to spend even just two hours a day running that stove, drying out um, both the shelter itself and your equipment because i can assure you it is going to get wet out there i think you're going to be um light years ahead of, of quite frankly um anyone running without a stove or a double walled shelter at that point because um you are going to be introducing so much humidity onto the inside of the shelter uh if if i can if i'm going dyneema i'll throw i'll throw a liner in there um because that will also help um, but I think at that point, you're really going to need to focus on making sure everything stays, um, keeping your ventilation up as much as possible and heating up the inside to dry it out. I think that's that in that particular environment, um, both, you know, coastal Washington, coastal British Columbia, Vancouver, even the west side of, uh, of the Canadian Rockies. Um, yeah, you're, I think the heat is going to be uh, as big or bigger of a benefit than even ventilation. Uh, yeah, I just have a question, you know, like you're talking, everything's going to be wet no matter what all the time. Yeah. So what kind of wood are you like, are you able, are you bringing wood or are you able to find stuff in like fire starter? Like, like kind of explain that process. Yeah. yeah, that's a good question. Um, if I could bring wood, I will, even if I'm not intending on necessarily using it, um, uh, I, I will bring it because it, it always makes me feel better that I'll have a backup. Uh, if I'm backpacking in though, dude, it's, it's, it's up to you to find, to find dry wood and you can, um, spend time under the canopy with, um, pulling kind of just the deadfall that hasn't come off of the trees yet. And then stripping that, um, you know, stripping that bark, stripping that, that first few millimeters of dermal layer on the, on the branches and, and logs themselves is, um, it, 
you can find some surprisingly dry stuff, at least dry enough to get, uh, to, to burn the fire. Um, I, I run a couple of different fire starters as well. Um, I've got this one. I've had a packet of it for years, um, but I'll, I'll send you a link to it. But it's a it's a commercially available. It's not a paste. It's a little brick, like a little briquette. But that thing burns so hot and burns so long that I I've just never struggled getting anything lit uh, in the stove. So um, to answer your question, I use both. Uh, but if I need if I need to rely on um, you know kind of deadfall or dead uh, <laughs> or dying branches. You, you can still find access to to dry enough uh, components to to burn well on those in those stoves. And and remember, you know these stoves are not they're not huge, so you're not looking to to find six eight inch diameter logs. You know I'm I'm looking for two inch stuff, two and a half inch stuff that I can at least get a fire going. And then once I've processed a good batch, I can I can take what I have not um, burned put it right next to the stove and just aid in continuing to dry it out and dry it out. So uh, I haven't, I haven't had much of an issue uh, playing it with that strategy out on the coast. Cool. Thanks. So, so that sounds like a lot of the same, like when I've been in really wet times in Colorado, um, the stove and just drying out the inside, like you almost say, oh, this first day it's going to be kind of wet. The second day you're like, by then it'll kind of dry out and be far more livable. Um, there's been, mm -hmm. cause there's been some, we don't always, we don't always get it, but sometimes we'll get a week or two that is just wet, wet, wet. So would you ever, yeah, we're, we're going to move to one of your favorite topics, the DST. Um, would, oh, would you it. ever use a DST and just run an outside fire at that time of year? Uh, that on the coast, I, yeah, I would. If I didn't have certainly, if I didn't have another option, I'd, I'd rather run a DST than an outside fire than sitting in a bivy sack. Personally, um, the DST could be pitched into some pretty airtight, some pretty watertight, I should say, uh, configurations. That um, you know, even with just a even with just a small fire, you can really, really be comfortable in that. I mean, I spent. Well, after, you know, after you and I met at that uh, rendezvous, I spent, I think, two full years, at least two full hunting seasons, only hunting out of the, the sealed DST. And it was, it was totally fine. Um, and I, it was putting a fire, uh, kind of a strategically placed fire, um, or setting up, I guess, let me rephrase that, setting up the DST strategically meaning like if you can set it up near a large boulder or some sort of rock face and putting a um a fire between the dst and that rock face well it will heat most people out of that little tarp um you know if you're if you're able to do that i've done the same thing and kind of a what appeared to be like a, a, an old tree stump that had been removed or or just ground away it was just a giant depression um that I kind of set the DST up on the on kind of the the crest or the edge of the depression, and I set up a little fire down below, and it was it was fantastic. Um, so the DST is is in of my experience, the most um, versatile tarp that that I've been able to use. And I I really like using tarps a lot. 
So it's mostly woodsmanship at that time and making use of terrain features, et cetera, to, to extend the tarp to be a more comfortable camp. I, I think so. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, um, it, it is certainly, uh, it's not as easy as throwing, you know, throwing up a Cimarron or, or a red cliff and, and throwing the stove in there and, and hanging out. That's, that's uh, that would be a fair statement, but it's certainly very usable and quite comfortable, even in very austere, uh, austere and wet conditions. Yeah. Are you using that three-sided pitch that I've seen you use before that looks kind of like an LBO or what? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so um, what I like to do is stake out. Um, I like to stake out all four corners, but the front corners a little bit closer together. That allows me to use a trekking pole uh, in the middle guy out loop to kind of make an A-frame shape like the LBA, LBO. Um, and then I've kind of uh, I've gone away from putting a trekking pole in the center patch on the inside, and I've gone to guying it out. Uh, from the outside loop, that vertical hanging loop that we have installed, mm -hmm. I've guided out to a, a trekking pole, but set off the back side of the tarp itself and then down to a stake using a 10 or 15 foot length of uh, cordage. And that totally opens up the, um, the inside of the tarp. Um, I mean, I can, I can fit two very comfortably, two of dogs is what we do in there. And then if we're, and, but what that does is it leaves an entire, the entire front of it is going to be open and exposed and that's, then that's okay. If I'm yeah. expecting a little more, uh, oh, go ahead. No, no, it ends up being kind of like our LBO base on its own when you pitch it like that. Yeah. 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 If I'm, if I'm expecting a little more aggressive weather or I'm just, I'm wanting maybe a little more heat retention if I'm not going to start a fire or something like that. I will rotate the tarp 90 degrees and set it up kind of like a, an A-frame, but in the long direction and put the trekking pole on the inside now from the, uh, uh, from the center patch. And then what else I can do is I can continue to bring those two front stakes closer and closer to the point where I can kind of seal up the front uh, opening uh, with like a stick or something. There's there's two other guy outs there between the corners and the center that I'm putting mm -hmm. the stick up for the to form the A-frame. Um, the other thing you can do is set the front stakeout points back one stakeout so you kind of have a loose triangle of fabric there. And you can bring those loose triangles in uh, in tighter. It'll be on the inside of the trekking pole that's forming the A-frame. Um, and you can you can button that tarp down as tight as any of our other shelters that um, short short of that zipper, it's really tight in there. It's very, very weatherproof. Nice, nice. Well, uh, we'll have to we'll have to get a video of you doing these things sometime, showing showing us what's up. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So I told you I told you this before we were going to start. Um, because we're going to have yeah. someone who is a rescue expert um, on here shortly. Uh, I thought it'd be sure. kind of funny for us to have everyone talk about backcountry blunders or time when something went sideways. Uh, I know it's usually our embarrassing thing to talk about, right? Um, we all we all want to be pull off every trip with absolute success. Uh, 
especially on Instagram or whatever. But sometimes things do go sideways. So what's your story? Oh, man. What isn't what isn't a story? It seems like every trip we've got something fun that uh, that happens. But um, kind of aviation specific, we have a, you know, flying in the backcountry requires some level of, of personal preparedness. And uh, sometimes that is a lesson that is um, that is learned the hard way. So um, I was flying uh, in must have been Oregon. Yeah, I was going into Oregon. It's, uh, it's a little strip um, southeast of Mount St. Helens. And I was like, it's just going to be a day trip. Going to go try and find a little a little um, creek that I'd seen on a map to go fish a little bit and just spend the day outside. Um, and I had had, before I took off out of, out of my house here, I'd had like a little bit of what I thought was no big deal, but a little bit of a starting issue. Uh, with with the airplane, so I'm like, ah, oh, it's not a big deal. Like, you know, we finally got it going, um, and it turns out that it was a bigger deal than I thought because what had actually happened was that the, um, when I was engaging the alternator, it was actually sh- it was shorting. It was the circuit breaker was popping, and I was unable to get it reset. Well, I didn't really. Fi- I was pretty young. I didn't really figure it out until I got down there. So it's kind of kind of stuck down there without a alternator it had already drained my battery and uh for those that are that know aviation a six-cylinder continental is is really not an airplane that we spend much time trying to uh, manually start by hand so uh, i got to spend an extra night down in oregon uh the only like, another pilot actually flew in the next morning just randomly to just check it out and i told them my plight and he's like, well, let's go get you another battery. So uh, the, the fraternity of aviation was able to come rescue me that day, but it, that's the sort of thing that uh, that happens and it was terribly embarrassing. And <laughs> I, I thought, I thanked the other pilot profusely for, for the lift and taking me in to grab another battery. But uh, that's just, you know, it's one of those things. I carry an extra battery with me now. <laughs> um, how, uh, how old were you? Like. Like I'm trying to place this. Did you have a cell phone? Like, could you call for help? Uh, no, I was like 21, 20, 21. It was it was probably 18 years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, it was a while. Ago. I mean, it was cell phones were out there, but the they were uh, the network. Yeah, was very very sketchy. I mean, if you weren't in a populated area, you weren't. I mean, you weren't even close to having a service. Crazy. Yeah, but it's one of those things, you know. You just kind of you roll with the punches. You, you just figure out what what you need to do and what your options are, and you execute. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess I never thought about it that way. I've been stuck down a couple uh, four wheel drive roads and stuff like that, and been like, well, geez, this isn't really a good spot right now. Um, or yeah, I ended up hiking out you know, and, you know, calling my wife and asking for a ride, um, something like that. <laughs> then, then usually listening to, um, how my most, what mistakes I made be relitigated. <laughs> you know, yep. I told you that 
change your tires <laughs> or that your tires are getting worn out or something <laughs> like that. So, you know, but, you know, and then eat a little crow. So, yeah. Cool. Well, I want to thank you for coming on today, Brendan. And anything else you want to talk about before we wrap up? Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, I'll just put in a plug for the Backcountry Hunters and Anglers if I can. It's, uh, we're out there fighting the good fight for our public land. So if, uh, if you have the inkling, check out uh, backcountryhunters.org and, and see if uh, you wouldn't mind signing up for a membership and, and uh, checking us out. Yep. BHA rocks. You have anything to add, Dennis? Awesome. No, I'm good. Uh, thanks for coming on, man. Uh, I learned a lot. Yeah, thanks, guys. Awesome. Thank you.